You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Psalm 2. That's going to be our sermon text this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, you can find Psalm 2 on page 418 of the Pew Bibles in front of you, those black uh, seatback Bibles. As you're turning there, I'll just say, if you, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take one of these uh, Bibles in the, in the seatbacks and take it home and read it. Consider it a, a gift from our church. We'd love for you to have it. So please follow along as I read from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to hear your word preached, we pray that you would give us humble and attentive hearts and that you would help us to receive it with joy. For your honor and glory, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning and happy new year. Uh, it's, it's always exciting to turn the page from one year to the next and, uh, and look forward to what the coming year holds. And I'm glad to see that many, or really everyone here, has made a good decision to start the year right and come to church, so good. Um, and with the new year comes a sense of endless possibilities and promise for what the future holds But our sermon text this morning is going to confront us with only two possibilities for eternity. Submit to Jesus as ruler of your life and personal savior, or be broken and perish in your continued rebellion. And Psalm 2 is a really good text to follow Christmas last Sunday. Because during Christmas, we tend to focus on the incarnation and birth of Christ, 
But Psalm 2 has more focus on the mighty kingship and eternal reign of Christ. And in this psalm, we see the end goal of Christ's birth, to rule the nation as his own possession. So as we look at Psalm 2, we're going to see four points. Point number one, the nations rebel. Point two, God answers the rebellion. The third point, God's son will rule. And point number four, take refuge in the son or perish. Before we dive into the text, I want to help us get our bearings to better understand what this psalm has to say. As we read the text of Psalm 2 a few moments ago, you may have noticed a pattern or cadence to the psalm. And after all, the, the psalms are songs which were sung by the people of Israel in ancient times. And so they frequently include uh, poetic and melodic elements. And, uh, and most of the phrases in Psalm 2 are purposefully set in pairs. And that serves as a poetic device and an indicator of emphasis. And it's helpful for our comprehension because generally these pairs are, are saying the same thing uh, in two different ways. We should also keep in mind that when we look at the Old Testament, we should always read it in light of the New Testament. And the New Testament references Psalm 2 in numerous places, so we need to take that into account. But at the same time, it's important that we consider what what would this text have meant to the original audience? They didn't have the New Testament, so what did it mean for them? So we'll look at both of these angles. What did it mean for the ancient audience, and, and what does it mean for us today? And lastly, just a little bit of cultural context about the psalm. It was written uh, around 1000 BC, and it's a psalm of David. And at this time, David had conquered the surrounding nations and ushered in an era of peace for Israel. So in singing this psalm, the people of Israel would be reminded of God's promises to the house of David, not uh, only to be the the source of joy and peace for the nations, uh, but also to make him uh, an everlasting kingdom. So it looks forward to a future when the messianic king would bring these promises to fruition. So with that, we come to our first point, the nations rebel. Let's read verses one through three again. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist begins with this exasperated question Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And we might tend to associate the term nations with uh, the unbelieving world at large. And uh, and this is an interpretation that the New Testament agrees with. But the original audience would have had a very real sense of the enemy nations surrounding Israel. Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, and so on. And verse 1 indicates that these nations, discontent with David's rule, are conspiring to overthrow him and to be, to, 
to be free to rule themselves once again. So despite their various personal interests and potential friction with one another, these kings of the earth band together in their common hatred of God. Verse 2 says that they set themselves or take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And the imagery here is of allied armies readying themselves for battle and strategizing and scheming and setting themselves as flint against God. So gathered in all of their wisdom and power to thwart God's rule, the nations devise a master plan in verse 3 to escape the authority of the Lord and his anointed, bursting apart the bonds of conscience and God's commandments and casting them as far away as they can. In so doing, they imagine that they will truly be kings of their own domains, free at last from the bondage of God's rule. No more David and no more God. If we fast forward in history 400 years from the writing of this psalm, it might look like the nations win because the Davidic kings descend into corruption and Nebuchadnezzar destroys Judah in 586 BC. So the Davidic succession of kings seems to end there. Nonetheless, the psalmist makes clear the rebellious revolution that the nations hope to accomplish is ultimately hopeless and vain. Their combined might cannot stand against the Lord and against his anointed. God's promises to his people are never frustrated by the schemes of mankind, even when it, hope, when it seems that hope is lost. Now, it's interesting that the rebellion of the nations is directed against what appears to be two figures, the Lord and his anointed. God's, uh, <clears throat> in your Bible, the word Lord is probably in all caps, which is the English translation's way of indicating the name of God, Yahweh. This is pretty common throughout the Old Testament, and maybe it's familiar to you, but maybe what's less familiar is this other figure against whom the nations are set, God's anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed here is very helpful. Uh, we normally pronounce it Messiah. In the New Testament, the same word is Christ. And this word Messiah is commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to Levitical priests, to God's anointed kings, and to the promised future messianic king. Now, given the rest of this psalm, the original audience would have understood this to be a reference both to God's anointed king David and his descendants, as well as to the future messianic king. And we know that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Messiah. And in fact, Acts 4 specifically tells us that this is a prophetic reference to, God's, uh, to Jesus in Psalm 2 when, when referring to God's anointed. So let's uh, just listen to Acts 4, starting at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we clearly see that the New Testament interprets Psalm 2 in a prophetic sense, which was fulfilled when the Romans, the other Gentiles, and the Israelites joined forces against Jesus and murdered him. No nation stood innocent in his condemnation. All of them played an active role, and they rejoiced to see him die. But verse 1 of this psalm reminds us that all of their schemes are in vain. They will fail in the end. So we see in this first section of verses 1 through 3, the united opposition of the nations against the Lord and against his anointed, and the plan that they concoct to escape God's reign. And maybe we think, that's really bad of them. How, how horrible of those wicked nations to rebel against God. But we need to examine our own lives and root out any ways that we might be rebelling against God and, and raging against his rule. So, where in your life are you raging against God? Where are you trying to escape his reign? If you think about that question and you come up with zero ways in which you are raging against God, you need to know that you are raging against God in arrogance. Or perhaps you have some pattern sin in your life for which you feel no guilt or no need to repent. Friend, please understand that sin by its very nature is rebellion against God, and it's contrary to his reign over our lives. God takes sin very seriously, and we should too. If you're not interested in rooting out sin in your life and striving to follow Jesus in righteousness, then your heart is in the same place as the nations who want nothing to do with God's commandments. Do you rage against God by resenting and reviling the moral obligations of purity and holiness that he demands? Do you try to find creative ways to justify doing the things that God forbids? Viewing God's commands this way reveals that you really do love your sin and rebellion. Do you rage against God by seeking to cast God's law far away from you so it can't condemn you? Maybe you simply ignore God. Maybe you don't read your Bible, or maybe you don't regularly sit under the teaching of God's word. Or maybe you just aren't receptive to the direction and correction that you get from the Bible and from teaching from God's word. Whatever the case, don't turn a blind eye to God. He has given us his word in order that we may know him and be holy as he is holy. Failing to pay attention to God's instruction for our lives is the same thing. It's attempting to cast away his commandments like the nations do in this psalm. Do you rage against God by neglecting to gather with his people? If this is the first time you've been to church in a while, think about why that is. Followers of Jesus are part of his body. And Jesus tells us we're supposed to live out our Christian lives in the 
context of the church, with other believers. To reject Christ's people is to reject Christ himself. And that's what the nations are doing in Psalm 2. So pray that God would give you a deep and abiding love for other believers and demonstrate that love by actually coming alongside them in the, in the context of the church. This is Christ's instruction and design for his people. And do you suppose that there are any exceptions to this general rebellion of the nations? We all live and work in America, and so maybe we think that our nation is particularly special in God's eyes, but we need to avoid that kind of thinking and understand that the rebellion that this psalm describes is pervasive in every nation and every culture. There are no exceptions. And left to our own devices, we hate God. It doesn't matter where we're from. We hate God left alone to our own devices. Let Acts 4 remind you that everyone pitched in to murder Jesus. The Romans, the other Gentiles, the Israelites, um, and they all rejoice to see him die. So here we move on to point number two. God answers the rebellion. Listen to verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is the one who sits in the heavens. The mustard might of the kings and rulers of the nations does not incite him to stand up to meet their rebellion. Rather, the Lord remains seated. He is unconcerned about the schemes of the nations. Their plotting does not disturb his perfect rest and his unwavering authority over all creation. The Lord answers the kings and rulers not by developing a new counter-strategy of his own, but by laughing in derision at their foolishness. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we then see in verse 5 that he who brought the universe into existence with his word who called light to shine forth from the darkness, whose thundering voice made the Israelites fearful of death, will speak to the kings and rulers of the nations in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And we should pay close attention to God's wrath. In Scripture, we are graciously warned about it in order that we may not fall under it. So let's take a moment uh, to just consider some other passages that describe the severity of God's wrath. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Isaiah 13.9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Or most graphically, Zechariah 14, 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. 
Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. God's wrath is serious and severe. The infinite measure of God's fury against sin is always appropriate. It's never misguided because he is perfectly good. So let us worship God for his goodness and for his promises to end evil once and for all. Looking back at verse 6, the Lord responds to the master plan of the nations. Uh, Again, he doesn't reveal a new plan to them, but one that has already been accomplished. God has already set his king on Zion. There is no power vacuum for supreme authority. The king is established. And as we mentioned before, this announcement of a king already set on Zion can be read with a dual meaning. At the time the psalm was written, David was reigning as king in Zion, which is in Jerusalem. And Solomon was set to inherit the throne after David died. The surrounding nations were subdued and Israel had conquered. Thus, the present reign of David and God's promise to establish David's kingdom would have been top of mind for the original audience. Furthermore, this response of God can also be understood as revealing the eternal plan that God has already decided. God has set King Jesus on Zion to rule over all the earth and subdue all those in rebellion. Listen to verses Uh, these verses from 2 Samuel 7, uh, where God establishes this very important covenant with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." In this text, we see the foundational promises that God makes to David from which Psalm 2 springs. Uh, And here, Solomon is the one in the immediate view because God promises to discipline him when he sins. But it also includes the hope of an eternal kingdom that culminates in King Jesus. It's in Christ's everlasting kingship that God has established David's throne forever. The infinite wisdom of God not only anticipates the schemes of the wicked nations, but it includes an eternal decree of divine authority that's already established. And this decree is a terror to all in opposition, and it puts to shame the wisdom of the nations. So what should we take away from these verses? Well, we must worship God for his wrath. This might not be something we're used to doing, But this psalm calls us to recognize it as a good and right response to evil. So give God praise for his wrath and fury against wickedness. He, unlike ourselves, is able to destroy evil once and for all. And we should take great comfort in the steadfastness of God. His plans are never frustrated. He's never 
outsmarted, he's never outgunned, and he's never defeated by the sinful schemes of mankind. God sits in the heavens unperturbed. He knows that his plans will come to pass. So let us rejoice in God's unwavering character. And do not suppose that you are wiser than God. God can see every corner of your heart, and he knows every thought that has yet to enter your mind. You cannot outsmart God, and trying to do so reveals your arrogance, and it's not going to end in your favor. So humble yourself and acknowledge you're foolish in your thinking, and ask God to give you true knowledge in the fear of him. We come now to the third point in our sermon, God's Son will rule. Let's read verses 7 through 9 again. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verses 7 through 9 elaborate on God's anointed king. We firstly see that the king is God's son and that the kingship of the son is a decree of the Lord, not a reactionary decree to combat the schemes of the nations, but it's an eternal decree. From before time began, the son has always been the heir of the nations, the one who would rule them with supreme authority. And we also learn that the narrator of this psalm even though it's written by David, is in fact the son himself. It says, the Lord said to me, the, the narrator, the Lord said to me, you are my son. But how do we know what exactly is meant by this term, my son? This is an important question because the answer could take us a lot of different places. In the Old Testament, this title of the son of God is used in multiple ways. It's used to describe angels, it's used to describe Adam, Israel, God's covenant people in smaller subset, subsets, individually or plurally, uh, and it's also used to refer to Davidic kings. And in the New Testament, it can refer to believers, to peacemakers, or to Jesus himself. And since this previous verse was talking about God setting his king in Zion, and in light of 2 Samuel 7 that we read earlier, referring to the subsequent Davidic kings as God's sons, the original audience would have understood this reference to God's son as the newly coronated Davidic king. So the narrator of this psalm, even though it's written by David, is essentially whichever new king is assuming the throne. His new kingship includes with it an inherited title as God's son. And this understanding agrees with the phrase, today I have begotten you. And, uh, recognizing that the narrator of the psalm is assuming a role they did not have before, being the king and thus being God's son. So in short, a new descendant of David assuming the throne likewise assumes the title of God's son. Furthermore, there is prophetic implication in verse 7. These words, you are my son, 
probably trigger in your mind some New Testament references that pertain to Jesus. One might be at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus emerges from the water, God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And another might be the transfiguration, where God says these same words, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So in light of the New Testament, we have the benefit of knowing the identity of the eternal Son of God, a descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth who is God's beloved son. And remember earlier when we read Acts 4, uh, we identified Jesus as God's anointed. And in these verses, Jesus is identified as God's son, not just in a kingly sense, but as having the same nature as the father. And we might take this connection for granted, but uh, this was a groundbreaking realization for the disciples. It, It would not have been immediately obvious to the ancient Israelites, that the Messiah would also be the eternal Son of God. And it's this very declaration Simon Peter makes to Jesus in Matthew 16. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, which remember means anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And in fact, John says that the whole reason he wrote his gospel is that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. Furthermore, several places in the New Testament quote this decree of sonship in Psalm 2 in order to highlight some very important aspect of Jesus. Hebrews 1 quotes it to describe the deity of Jesus in being God's begotten Son. Hebrews 5 quotes it to describe Christ's calling as our great high priest. And Acts 13 quotes it to describe Christ's resurrection as the fulfillment of this psalm and the verification of Christ's identity as the Son of God. Then moving on to verse 8 of Psalm 2. The Lord desires to give the nations to the Son as his heritage and possession. Now, given the negative description of the nations thus far in the psalm, we might think to ourselves, the nations are raging, and to inherit them sounds kind of like a headache and not really like a reward. Um, Nonetheless, the Son wills to have them, and he will have them according to God's promises. Here, the sheer scope of ruling all the nations of the earth points to the ultimate kingship of the Messiah. But in order for the Son to possess the nations, there has to be a way for them to be preserved, even though they are in rebellion. But before providing that critical antidote, verse 9 spells out the appropriate punishment for the rebellion of the nations. Breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Son does not overlook the wickedness of the nations. He delivers justice as a good and righteous king. Now, for the enemy nations surrounding Israel, this meant that the king of Israel would stomp out their rebellion and subdue them. Then Revelation 19 uses the same language to describe King Jesus ruling the world with a rod of iron. From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The supreme king is none other than the Son of God himself, Jesus. He will have the nations as his inheritance and will execute righteous judgment as part of his perfect reign. So how should we then act differently in light of Christ's dominion? We need to consider how God, through his covenant with David and through the adoption that he offers in Christ, he calls mere human beings his sons. Now these are people whose sin nature has alienated them from God, but on whom God has still set his precious and very great promises. We, though infinitely undeserving of God's favor, are considered his sons and daughters through the blood of Christ. So let us rejoice in the adoption that we have as sons through Jesus. And we want to be careful that we don't think of God the Father as being mean and wrathful, and Jesus is gentle and kind but has no wrath. That's not true. The Father and the Son share the same hatred of sin, and they both promise the same wrath and fury against it. Jesus is not okay with your sin. Give Jesus praise for his wrath and tremble before it, and may his burning anger against your sin deter you from it. And likewise, both the Father and the Son work in unison to establish the nations as the Son's inheritance, meaning they're both at work in the plan of redemption and restoration for the nations. So give God thanks for entrusting the nations to his perfect Son. And we would do well to remember what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, because it means something for us. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is hugely important for us individually because it calls for perseverance in following Jesus until the end. And Jesus promises a great reward, reigning over the nations alongside him. And he's able to bestow this because, according to Psalm 2, the Father has given it to him. So hear this call. Don't stop following Jesus. Keep going. He will give you strength for the day and will help you endure through every trial of this life. The reward is worth it. And we now arrive at our fourth and final point. Take refuge in the sun or perish. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here, the psalmist 
spells out for us the proper course of action in light of the Son's reign. We see the word therefore that tells us that what's coming next is the logical next step of what was before. And so in light of what has now been revealed about God's anointed king, namely his inheritance of the nations and his execution of justice, what should the enemy kings and rulers do? They must believe these things and be wise, immediately abandoning their foolish plan of rebellion. They must come to their senses and recognize the real and imminent danger of their continued impenitence. They've received a clear warning. The sun will not tolerate their wickedness forever, and he will eventually break all who will not bow. Verses 11 and 12 give some direct action items for the kings and rulers of the earth, and these instructions are in their own best interest. They're all opposite behaviors from uh, the scheming and plotting that they were doing at the beginning of the psalm. So rather than bursting apart the bonds of God's authority, they must serve him with fear. Rather than rejecting God's rule, they must rejoice in it with trembling. And rather than wage war against the Lord and against his anointed, they must kiss the Son and honor him in full submission. In a word, they're commanded to repent, to turn from their sin and towards God in faith. Now when we hear that the kings and rulers must serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, we might kind of shrink back with negative connotations uh, of those words. But we need to remember that reverential fear of the Lord is always regarded as a good and right thing in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 33.8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And furthermore, this heart posture of fear and trembling is integral to our salvation. It shows that we have a sincere reverence towards God and that we recognize God's supreme greatness and our feebleness and unworthiness before him. We depend entirely on God's mercy and we are laid bare before his power and holiness. Paul says this in Philippians 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So fear and tremble before God. He reigns supreme over the entire universe and rejoice because he cares for us and desires for us to be reconciled to himself through Jesus. And then in verse 12, we get the clearest explanation of how the kings and rulers and ourselves should regard the Son and be rescued from destruction. We read the command, kiss the Son. Some of your translations might say, pay homage to the Son and take refuge in Him. 
We should think carefully about this phrase, kiss the sun, because we want to understand it rightly. If we don't, it can take us to some weird places. So let me be clear. This phrase is not encouraging uh, the seeking of a personal romantic relationship with Jesus. That's not the connotation. But instead, kissing the sun reflects humility and submission before Jesus, adoring him, worshiping him, sincerely loving him, and demonstrating loyalty and allegiance to him. A beautiful picture of this is the woman from Luke 7. Listen to this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answers him with a picture of two debtors whose debts are forgiven, one who owed little and one who owed much. He then says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And likewise, the kings and rulers in Psalm 2, if they fail to see their need for reconciliation with God, if they fail to submit to the Son, if they fail to sincerely love him as their king, they will not be forgiven. If by their hard-hearted, cold, settled hatred of the Son, they reject his reign, then the consequence is clear. The Son will be angry with them, rightly so, and they will be consumed by his wrath. But if they do indeed repent and kiss the Son, we see the wonderful promise of blessing for all who take refuge in him. It is in the refuge of the Son alone that the nations can be preserved as his heritage and possession and stand in the judgment. John 3.36 repeats the sentiment, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Son promises blessing and refuge in himself, and he extends this offer to rebellious nations who do not deserve it. Why? Because the Son genuinely desires that they become his own. He's well aware of their sinfulness, yet he's patient in showing them the path to forgiveness and reconciliation. In this last section of verses, we clearly see Christ's directives for all who would be called his people and take refuge in him. And we also find a warning detailing the consequences of failing to submit to Jesus, utter destruction. Now, if at some point in the sermon you kind of turned your ears off 
Now is the time to turn them back on, okay? Because this is our story too. We, like the nations in Psalm 2, have hated God. We've sought to escape his rule and authority over our lives. We have not honored Christ in our hearts. We've instead loved our sin. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've called good evil and evil good. And with each sin we've committed, and our sins are many, we have earned God's wrath and condemnation. But God, through his beloved Son, has made a way for sinful human beings to be reconciled to himself. In his mercy and compassion, he sent the eternal Son that Psalm 2 talks about to be born as a baby and to grow up and live the perfect life that you and I could not live and to ultimately be crucified. But he was not crucified in defeat at the hands of the wicked nations, but according to the perfect plan of God. King Jesus offered himself up as our perfect once-for-all sacrifice to bear the wrath that we deserved. The divine fury that this psalm promises to unrepentant nations and to us, Christ took upon himself for his people. In his death, he made perfect atonement for all who believe, and his resurrection from the dead bears witness to his deity and to his authority over life and death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will return to fulfill this psalm in its entirety. In his first coming, God's anointed king came as a suffering servant. But in his second coming, he will break the rebellious with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will bring a full end to the rebellion of the nations and reign over them forever and ever. So repent of your sins and cast yourself on the grace and mercy of Jesus to save you from the wrath your sin deserves. Love him as your all. He stands ready to forgive you, and he alone offers perfect refuge for your soul. And please understand that salvation from hell is not automatic. Ephesians 2 tells us we're saved by grace through faith. And saving faith hates sin and loves Christ. So turn from your sin and turn to Christ. He is the perfect refuge for your soul and the only hope you have to be reconciled to God. And if the good news of Jesus laying down his life to save sinners like you and me does not warm your heart and kindle your affections for Christ, I would urge you to think about why that is. And if you're thinking, yeah, all of those people should think about why that is, then you need to be especially self-reflective. Take some time to meditate on the gospel and stay there until you are thoroughly filled with gratitude to God, hatred of sin, and assurance in Christ. Coldness to the gospel is something we must not be content with. We must search our hearts for the sin that dulls our understanding and stop at nothing until it is defeated by our love for Jesus. And we need to render to Jesus sincere homage and submission not betraying him or pretending to honor him like Judas did. Because it's possible to externally demonstrate piety towards Christ, but still not belong to him. And friends, this is not saving faith. That's hypocrisy, and it will end in death. 
sincere devotion to Jesus will end in reconciliation and life. And we must remember that all of God's warnings in Scripture are gracious warnings. They tell us where we ought not go, and they help us to avoid painful correction or maybe in the worst case, total destruction. And so when you read your Bible and you see a warning, give praise to God for providing moral clarity where we might otherwise tend to stray. So be wise and heed that warning and stay far away from whatever is forbidden. Now in this sermon, we've heard the words wrath and fury and rebellion quite a bit. But I want you to remember how God offers reconciliation through Jesus. Does our rebellion warrant God's wrath and fury? Absolutely. Has Christ borne this wrath in the stead of his people? Absolutely. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, perhaps you've recently realized you don't truly belong to Christ, I would urge you, don't go to sleep tonight estranged from God. Come talk to me or one of the elders or a believing friend if you have any questions about how you can be saved through Jesus we would love to talk to you after the service and if you are a believer take heart God is victorious over sin and death and the rebellion of the nations has an expiration date Jesus will return to vanquish evil and reign in righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth and we will worship him alongside ransomed believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. So don't give up. Keep loving Jesus and look to him for strength to persevere to the end. Lord God, we praise your name. We praise you for being a God of righteousness who hates sin and executes justice in perfect goodness. We give you praise for your wrath and for promising to put an end to evil once and for all. We praise you that Jesus will do this, breaking the nations with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We are humbled in our recognition that we deserve this fate, yet you have offered forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. Thank you, God, that you rescue us from our sin and you promise to seat us with Jesus and reign with him forever. Lord, may we all have hearts that genuinely love Christ, and may we all find refuge in him. Amen.